Do you like data centers? Cause I love data centers! I love data centers. I love data centers. We love data centers! Welcome and thank you for listening. This is your host, Sean Patrick Terrio, founder, CEO, and catalyst of Open Spectrum. What you can expect to find here on this podcast are fresh new conversations with some of the most successful, experienced, and fascinating players that I have met while working in the data center marketplace over the past decade. For those who already know me, this probably goes without saying, but I can assure you new listeners that there will be no marketing fluffery or sales BS here. In fact, this is specifically a no marketing fluffery and sales BS zone, at least for the next hour or so. My objective is pure. It's to simply share some raw, honest advice and entertaining stories that will hopefully teach you something new, maybe something thought-provoking and maybe even enjoyable about the industry that drives the brave new digital world that we live in today. We have a pretty awesome interview for you this week with Raul Martinique, who is a partner with the private equity firm Digital Bridge. Raul is pretty awesome because he not only speaks the language of CFO and CEO and has helped numerous companies grow and scale and been sold, you know, been involved with selling a handful of companies and been crazy successful in his career, but he also speaks geek meaning the language of the technology inside the companies that he's worked with, he is intimately familiar with. So whether it's telecommunications, fiber optics, wireless, data center, hosting, virtualization, you name it. Not only does he speak that language, but he's passionate about it. And it was one of the first things that drew me to Raul when I met him was just simply how well-versed he was and how passionate he was about the industry that he worked in. And I think that's what's going to make this interview very, very fascinating for you as a listener is because he melds the, the gap between finance and geekery uh, very, very well and provides a very unique perspective to that extent. So without further ado, here is the interview with Raul Martinique. Welcome, Raul Martinique to I Love Data Centers. I'm very excited for you uh, taking the time and, and joining us on this on this podcast. Thanks for inviting me, Sean. So my friend, the first question I have for you is where where do you sit right now? Can you kind of walk me through you know, the, the physical nature of where you are as we're talking? Sure. I, um, I've lived most of my adult life in the, the New York City area. So I'm um, actually sitting in New York City today at uh, the offices of Digital Bridge, which is the um, private equity investment platform that I'm part of or working with now. And were you born and raised in, in New York? No, no. I'm originally from um, Madrid, from Spain. So um, I'm one of those uh, nasty immigrants that uh, our president doesn't like to. <laughs> well, let's, let's not get political on this, but um, <laughs> did, did you migrate over? Were you literally born in, in Spain? Yeah, my family came over um, in 1970. Uh, at the time, Spain was a dictatorship, so there wasn't a lot going on economically. So, you know, classic, um, you know, st- migration for economic opportunity. Interesting. And for for those who are listening to to this podcast, could you give just a little bit of background of, of what it is that you're doing today and I guess what you've done over the last couple of years? And then, you know, later on, we can dive into some some more of the nick of how you got to where you're where you're at today. 
Sure. So um, I've been working with uh, Digital Bridge. Uh, Digital Bridge is an investment uh, platform focused on what we call mobile and communications infrastructure. So if you think about kind of how the digital world works today, how kind of the global internet works today, there's you know three broad components of it. It's um, mobile infrastructure, so cell towers and small cells. That's how those signals kind of get to your uh, get to your mobile phone or smartphone or obviously Wi-Fi or um, or desktop. And then fiber obviously connects that, and then the data the data resides in in data centers. So uh, so we focus on those three sectors. And the company's been around for three years and has um, invested in five platforms, uh, three on the mobile side, I'm sorry, four on the mobile side, and and uh, now one on the data center side. And we have another uh, data center investment that we're targeting and, and hopefully we'll be able to announce in, um, in the next, uh, call it 60 days or so. Right on. And for those who, again, are, are kind of new to this, can you talk through what the, the announcements that you can speak to that Digital Bridge has, has done recently? Sure, sure. The, uh, the, the companies that we've announced publicly are uh, the business started um, uh, with uh, with Mexico Tower Partners. So it's uh, the largest private tower REIT in, in Mexico. Uh, then we have a U.S. data center, a U.S. tower REIT called Vertical Bridge, which is the largest privately owned um, tower REIT in the U.S. Um, and then there was uh, a tower company in South America called Andean Tower Partners, which is uh, focused on Peru and Colombia. Um, the small cell business uh, or distributed antenna systems, as it's called, is a, is a business in Chicago called Exonet. They operate around 20,000 small cell nodes in about 30 markets across the U.S. And then our most recent deal is Databank, which is a data center business based in Dallas um, that had originally... Uh, data centers in three markets, Dallas, Minneapolis, and Kansas City. And since we acquired that business in July, we've done two follow-on deals, uh, acquiring a, a business out of Salt Lake City called C7. And then we recently announced the acquisition of two assets from uh, a business called 365 Data Centers. We acquired their data center business in Pittsburgh and in Cleveland. Right on. You guys have been busy, to say the least, over the last uh, 12 months. I know that for, for a fact, just talking with you. And I want to give a quick shout out to the, the folks at C7, Jeff Swain and, and Dave Jenkins, who I've done work with over the last couple of years. They were some of the early adopters of our of our Delta Force IT training in the industry. So uh, good, great people in Salt Lake City. And I'm glad, glad to hear that, that you guys are working together now. Yeah, they're, uh, Jeff's a great guy. Um, obviously, they've built a really good business there. It's a really interesting kind of secondary market, um, you know, nice facilities. And, and you know, I, I definitely think the training was part of their success as they're, you know, very, very professional, very competent and, um, and, and show really well. So, Raul, I got to tell you, which I think I've already told you before, but you are hands down still to this day, the only owner and CEO, maybe not owner, but CEO of a data center company that I've ever met who's just as passionate about the technology and infrastructure that's going on inside the building as, as I am and the other geeks in the industry. That being said, you're also one of the most competent I've met as well on the, on the finance side and the real estate side of the house. Um, and I guess one of one of the driving questions that I have related to that is how the heck did you 
evolve into kind of the hybrid human that you are today in in our industry in that you know the the technology is something that you're so passionate about in addition to the finance and and real estate side of it uh, no well listen thanks for the kind words i mean it's been quite a kind of an eclectic journey uh you know so look i'm I got in the space uh, in 94, so it was kind of, you know, in essence, in the beginning, uh, you know, the Telecom Act of 96 hadn't been passed, and, you know, obviously the the internet really wasn't around, and mobile wasn't around, and, and data centers weren't really around, right? So I, I started, you know, like other folks that started at that time in kind of wireline competition, and uh, joined a, a startup, uh, CLEC, that was based in New York City. It was a brute step business, so we were reselling at the time and kind of had to learn the business, um, you know, brick by brick and from kind of the ground floor. Um, you know, I, I had moved into telecom after having spent a bunch of years going to grad school, working on Wall Street, working for the U.S. government, not being able to kind of find something that um, really kind of, you know, made me passionate. And, you know, once I found kind of telecom and then obviously internet, uh, you know, I, I knew I was in the right field. So that was my first business was a 13 year odyssey, you know, through the bubble era, the dot-com crash, you know, a couple of years after it that I affectionately call the, the Bataan death march, because if you were a company that had survived 2000, you literally, there was no money out there. So you either made it or you kind of just fell on the side of the road and were a carcass. And obviously there was thousands of bankruptcies back then. And then we kind of, you know, made our way through that desert and, and did a bunch of M&A and built a, a Northeast CLEC called Info Highway that, you know, was, was well profitable and attractive and growing. And we had started to evolve into kind of unified communications, which you hear about a lot now, but we were literally selling that product in 2003. And, and we're one of the early leaders and kind of the poster child for Broadsoft, which is today the leader in kind of that software-defined voice platform. Um, we sold that business in 2007. I ended up working for a hedge fund, uh, which was great because I started to be able to see the sector a little more broadly. That's one of the things that, you know, I, I really wanted to do was I wanted to stay in the space. You know, I didn't want to go run a restaurant or, you know, buy a car wash, but I didn't want to do wireline because I felt in 2008 that that industry was was dead and that it was just basically a big melting ice cube uh, or iceberg. Uh, so that stint at this uh, hedge fund, Plainfield Asset Management, allowed me to kind of look at different business models. And I quickly realized that the three areas that were really interesting that were going to grow were data centers and cloud wireless infrastructure, and then terrestrial fiber. So so that's where I decided to kind of pursue my interest. And uh, through Plainfield, they had made an investment in a fiber company in Ireland called Smart Telecom, uh, which wasn't a very smart investment on their part. Uh, so I ended up having to be parachuted in there and spent a year commuting to Dublin from New York City um, and kind of had to, you know, turn that business around. And eventually we sold it to another Irish company called DigiWeb, which ended up acquiring Viatel. And then Viatel was sold onto Zeo last year. So that was a really interesting experience, you know, operating a business in another country, getting to understand the fiber business. Um, from there, I've, I actually started doing a bunch of different work in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, which is uh, part of my uh, personal interest that I've developed and something that I've been doing since 2010. I have been to the continent extensively, you know, I've been there about 30 times over the last five, six years and have done the majority of my work in Cameroon, 
working for the Ministry of Post and Telecommunications on a variety of projects that basically help with the rollout of, you know, modern telecom and internet infrastructure in, in that country, uh, submarine cable negotiations, um, uh, national fiber build, um, mobile license sale, 3G mobile license sale, and most recently a, a renewal of existing mobile licenses. And that has been a really interesting experience because it, there's so many parallels to the 95, the 2000 era. So you kind of step over there and you, you're, you're like, I've seen this film before. I know what's going to happen. I know what needs to happen. And, and we also know all the mistakes we made. So let's not do certain things and only focus on the things that, um, that, you know, are the most, um, you know, the, the most cost effective and, and the most sustainable. So that's been a great experience. And, you know, since over the last couple of years, I've been running, I've run two businesses in kind of the cloud data center space. One was a, a business called Voxel, which was a global managed hosting company, really small, but under the radar, but great technology and um, joined that company in 2010. And we did a, a raise some capital and had a wonderful year. And that's when the kind of the cloud was really starting to become commercialized, especially on the enterprise side. So there was a lot of interest from other players to kind of get into that sector and compete with obviously AWS. And at the time, Azure didn't even really exist. And that business we sold to Internet in 2011, which, as you know, is a Atlanta-based uh, data center business. And after my non-compete ended there, um, I ended up running a data center business in New Jersey, which obviously is how we fortunately met. Um, called NetAccess, and we sold that business about a year ago to uh, Cologix. So, um, and that's where how I met the Digital Bridge guys. They were one of the, the players that um, were interested in in, in NetAccess, um, and I joined their team uh, after the sale in uh, December of 2015. Well, that's quite a journey, my friend. Thanks. I mean, uh, I've 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 gone out of my way to to you know, to seek new opportunities that are not what I've done. Uh, and I think that's kind of back to your original question, how I've been able to kind of cobble together these this, these different skill sets on the finance and sales and operations side and understanding kind of how fiber works and how data centers work, how the cloud works, and, and, and really have obviously done it from, you know, being behind a team uh, to learn that. And, and there's no there's no better way of, of doing that. So that's, it's a great sector, as you know, there's there's just it's so much change that's happened in just the last 20 years. I mean, it is astounding that everything about the modern age today is is really only 20 years old. Right. I mean, before 95, there was a lot of work being done kind of more on the computer side. Right. Uh, but there really was no, no real work being done on the communication side. And I, I like to tell people that, you know, I mean, in 95, when we got in, we were selling long distance when that was a product. I mean, it, it was it cost 75 cents to call California. I mean, think of how insane that is. That, and that's obviously $19.95. And, and how 20 years later, which is really just a blink of the eye, I mean, how far this industry has advanced. It's going to be really interesting to see what happens over the next 20 years. Yeah, it definitely has been interesting to say the least. Part of what's made me the technology geek and nerd that I am today is I was uh, grateful to have a, an uncle, Christopher Hartnett, who I think we've talked about before. You may have run across him, who was running uh, USA Global Link, and he had one okay. of the first global callback services. And uh, just learning that at a very young age and the, fa the fact that the cost between you know China and America was 
2x the cost of or, or half the cost between China and England and the cost between England and the US was maybe like a tenth the cost. And so if you could get a call back between China and Europe through the US, you could save you know a couple pennies a minute and aggregate that across hundreds of thousands of phone calls taking place any given minute uh, around the world. There's you know a multi-billion dollar business you can grow almost overnight was was fascinating. <laughs> and that that was only like 15 years ago 16 16 yeah, years ago yeah probably yep absolutely. yeah um yep. and one of the other interesting things that i took note of while, while you were talking is uh you know going into cameroon and doing the work that you're doing there and just seeing the parallels to the market here in the united states 15 20 years ago is the travel that i've been doing across the country uh over the last five six years doing the trainings that i've been doing and touring through so many different properties i'm even seeing you know u.s cities you know tier three markets tier two and tier three markets here in the states that are five six seven years behind the times so being able Absolutely. to go yeah there's so much opportunity i see going into those markets and helping bring those facilities and those companies that are operating in those markets into the 21st century you know just helping them graduate five years just having a couple conversations with them and having them rethink and retool the way that they're doing business. Yeah, that's absolutely right. We, you know, I saw that very clearly on the U.S. side with DataBank. You know, one of our recent markets was Minneapolis, and that's a market where you know it's literally call it three to five years behind you know New York or San Fran or Chicago in terms of enterprise outsourcing, and you know the it's it. it Companies are just starting to to look to outsource their data center needs, and these are sophisticated businesses. So it's not like you know there's there's a there's a a knowledge um, you know gap there. It's just kind of just the cycle of it, and ultimately you know there hasn't been a quality infrastructure in those markets, which is one of the reasons people don't want to outsource. So that's what we're starting to see is you know the edge. In essence, everyone talks about the edge being, you know, in the basement of a building or, you know, on the street corner or, you know, all these different kind of micro data centers. But ultimately, what, what's happening today from an edge perspective is that we're just seeing this migration of workloads that are supporting kind of the modern Internet move to places like Kansas City or Minneapolis or Pittsburgh or Cleveland and or Salt Lake and because um, those are significant metropolitan areas with a lot of population and they're being served from somewhere but it, it's not local and that's ultimately what's driving that dynamic. One of the things that that, that reality is also bringing uh, is a flood of new professionals into the data center and cloud and hosting services industry. Uh, which you know is is a beautiful thing for for my business for obvious reasons, <laughs> um, because we're spending a lot of, of time training and educating those people um, and and getting them up to speed as quickly as possible. Um, but to that end, I'm curious with with your experience, wh what is some advice that you would give someone who's brand spanking new into our industry, who's maybe coming from totally either a different industry altogether or maybe peripheral. Um, you know, telecommunications type of space? I think, you know, look, I've always felt that sales is a great place to to learn. Uh, but to be an effective salesperson, you have to have knowledge. And and that's what a lot of people don't do, right? They, they come into the sector and they don't spend the time to learn fundamentally what is going on with with the internet, you know, how that works, how, um, you know, applications work, 
uh, and then how data center works. So, you know, my, my advice would be if, if, if you're new to the space, you, you know, you gotta, you gotta really dedicate serious time to learning the nuts and bolts of, of how this works, because ultimately that's what makes you an effective salesperson. And I, obviously I know that's a huge part of, of, of the business for you. And, uh, you know, one thing I've enjoyed working with you on is, is your commitment to, to that, to learning and, and to having an intense level of knowledge about what's going on. But that's, that's the number one thing I think people miss and then they struggle and they wonder why they're struggling. Well, you know, um, people don't want to buyers in our sector. They're, they're very technical. They're very uh, smart. They don't want to deal with people that don't understand the product. And, and ultimately that's where the disconnect is um, with, with the folks that don't make it. Yeah. I hear you, man. So let's, let's backtrack a little bit. When you came yeah. over around 1970, you said, how, how old were you then? I was five, <laughs> five years old. And, and you moved into the greater New York area right from Spain. Yep. So at what point were you started or were you introduced to, to computers in general? Was that, College or is that beyond college? Or? No, it was it was it was it was actually around uh, middle school at the time. You know, so in the in the late seventies, right? That's when obviously Microsoft got started and Atari and all the first generation of kind of quote unquote personal computers, right? So uh, I don't know why I was interested in it, but you know, I just had an attraction to it. And um, my my first computer was this bubbled keyboard black thing that was called a Timex Sinclair. And um, you would plug it into a, a, a black and white TV at the time. And, and you were able to write little programs in basic, right? So you could do things like, you know, make letters go across the screen or, you know, there was only one game at the time, which was a pong game, which was, you know, two paddles and you would hit a ball back and forth and um, you would move the paddles with kind of the up and down arrow keys on, on, on the keyboard. So that's kind of what, what started it. And, um, you know, through college, I mean, I, I didn't study computers. I was a computer science, I was a poli-sci major, believe it or not. Uh, but I, you know, kind of stayed close to it. And then when I got out of college in, in, in 88, my first job working for the government, that's kind of when 286s came out, which was like the second generation of, of PCs. And that's when really they started to enter the business workforce. So this is, again, the late 80s. And for whatever reason, again, in that time, there was no people that had a job in an office that was the IT guy, right? Because it just didn't exist. So I kind of just raised my hand up and said, I'll be the IT guy. So I remember, you know, taking computers and, and taking them out of boxes and building them over the weekend for our people in our office. And that's how I learned. Uh, that's what kind of started my interest in real in technology. And from there, I learned, um, you know, a couple of different software languages, the predominant one being a, a database programming language, which was called Paradox. Uh, and I was doing kind of Paradox programming on the side. So when I kind of switched into telecom, I didn't understand anything about, you know, telephony or telecommunications. I knew about computers. I knew about software. And that certainly has given, gave me a, a foundation to then learn these other things. And, and again, when the internet arrived in, in 95, it wasn't obvious that it was a telecommunication service. I mean, people don't realize that at that time, AT&T and all the baby bells that they were called at the time and, and MCI and Sprint, who were the, the players that were around, they weren't selling that product initially. 
it, you know, there were companies like UUNet and Netcom and PSI.net that were standalone ISPs. And it was only like in 98 or so when people realized that, you know, hey, this is, this is part, this belongs with voice communication and data communication. And that's when, you know, acquisitions happened and these telecom companies became, as they called them at that point, integrated communications providers, right? So it's a kind of fascinating um, progression, but, you know, uh, the, the internet uh, was not something that was uh, embraced 100%. I mean, I, I remember very many people throwing me out of their offices uh, in, in the mid-90s and telling them, telling me they don't need the internet. They don't want the internet. They'll, they'll, send, a, they'll send a messenger or they'll send a fax. That's, that was the predominant thing, right? So again, you're talking 20 years ago and look at that evolution. So that that is just absolutely mind blowing to me. Um, and what's what's even interesting back in two thousand five, two thousand six, I even had a client down in Los Angeles that happened to be one of the largest um, recruiting companies in the digital media space. So for for gaming companies, and they ran their entire practice out of filing cabinets. And it was kind of mind blowing yep. to me. And one of the first big projects I ever did, forklift IT projects I did, was bringing that company into into the 21st century, and helping them understand how they could be leveraging some software as a service tools to store all this data in a massive database and quickly access it without having to flip through filing cabinets. Um, and it, it, yeah, it was just kind of shocking to me, having grown up with technology, that in the middle of 2000, you'd still have companies using filing cabinets to, to store their data. But sure enough. So one of the other questions that I have for you is, were, were there any moments in your career where you just felt like all the connections started coming together and lay, layering on top of one another and light bulbs just started going off at a much you know, much more drastic level than maybe bef- maybe prior. Um, and I'll give you an example. One, one of the most enlightening experiences for me was when one of my bosses uh, taught me what a simple thing like a trace route was and going into my DOS prompt and, and doing a quick trace route to a domain address. That for me, I will vividly, I can close my eyes and tell you exactly where I was, what the day was, uh, you know, what I was smelling because I just felt like my brain exploded. Um, and everything started to make sense. Do you do you have a similar type of experience? Yeah, it's so funny you you have uh, you have that memory. I have the same one. I mean, when I, I two two in, two in particular when uh, when I started again we were we were uh, we were we were kind of a startup. We didn't have a lot of cash. We had to generate revenue in any way possible. And you know, web development in the mid in the mid nineties. You know. People, there wasn't a lot of that going on. Businesses didn't have websites. So I went to a bookstore. I bought a book that had an HTML. It was an HTML 1.0 at the time. Had a CD in the back that had an editor called uh, Hot Metal Pro. And I pulled an all-nighter. And in the morning, I had built our website for the company and kind of had figured out how to host it and upload it and make it work. And about the time, there wasn't, uh, everything was running on Solaris. So it was just all of a sudden understanding how a website works and what happens when you click things. I mean, it's such a mystery to people even today. And all of a sudden that was a huge revelation. And, and then the second piece, so now I understood how, you know, top of the OSI model worked. And then the second piece was like, I got to learn, you know, TCP IP. 
right? And I bought a book. Uh, I still have it in my library at home. And I was studying that book. And I'll, I'll never forget when that aha moment over how, you know, transmission control protocol works, internet protocol works, and then most specifically how DNS works. And it was like, it was beautiful to understand how, you know, IP numbers were related to uh, names and how name services work and how that directed information and how those computers or whatever, those nodes communicated with each other, the information that was accessed. So, so for me, that was the aha moment from a technology perspective. Uh, but look, I'll tell you, you know, I've, I've had those aha and those kind of breakthrough moments on other things, right? Because one thing I've always done in my life is once I've learned something, I, I, at a deep enough level, I want to kind of move on and learn another aspect, right? So, you know, having, I've had that same experience on the sales side, as an example, I've had that same experience on the management side. I've had that experience on kind of the, the finance side and throughout my career. And then most recently, now that you kind of have those building blocks, it's about kind of, you know, learning a new business, right? Going from a telecom company to a fiber company and then learning what makes a fiber company tick. And then, you know, it was challenging when I went from that to a hosting company that was highly technical. And all of a sudden I realized, you know, the stuff I had learned 15 years ago was so obsolete. It almost had no relevance to how things were done today. And then having to, you know, literally drink from a fire hose for a couple months to be able to, you know, add value to discussions around products and pricing and positioning and competitive dynamics and things like that. So I think that's the key though, as long as, you know, through your career, you kind of seek out those uh, things that you don't know, and then make a point of putting yourself in an uncomfortable position that requires you to have to work really hard to keep your head above water. And all of a sudden, you'll come out the other end if you have faith. And obviously, if you work hard, and you've learned something, and that's just, you know, a, a great way for me to, you know, to, I, the way I, I think you want to go through life. So I'm I'm curious for my own personal gain and, and luckily those listening, what are what is maybe one of the top lessons you learned on the sales side of the house um, with your experience there where you had an aha moment and mind explosion? Well, I think no, I think it, it's it's what I said earlier, which is you know I my my first uh, my first introduction to sales was kind of an ugly one. I I I, I went to West Point first uh, for a year and then after, decided to leave after a year and didn't know what I was going to do next and took a job selling vacuum cleaners door to door. And I'm like 19 years old and I'm trying to like, you know, stick my foot in the door so that they don't slam it on you. And that left this impression on what sales was, was, you know, trying to force something onto someone that they don't want. And when I joined my first the telecom business, when my partner hired me, he was a consummate salesperson and I would go out with him and all, and it, I realized that, my gosh, if you really understand your product, if you really um, know it better than anyone, then you're not selling. What you're doing is really just providing information. These buyers wanted to learn how the internet worked. They wanted to learn how you know, on the voice side, DID work, right? And if you had the ability to explain to them how these things help them with their business, you're really helping them, right? So all of a sudden sales, which had this negative connotation, didn't have that negative connotation for me. It was about, you know, conveying information and, and it was really satisfying. And I, I, again, I think that's the approach you have with your emphasis on training, but that's, that's what sales really is if you do yeah. it right. Yeah, it's 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 funny. You've kind of 
it's one of the, the key lessons in life that I, I have learned. And thankfully I learned at a very early age is that sales is not forcing something onto someone that they don't want or need. Sales is actually providing a solution when someone either prior to someone knowing that they need it um, or when they need it desperately. And so it's, it's the old adage where when, when people say, you know, Joe can sell ice to an Eskimo. I'm like, why the hell would an Eskimo need ice or want ice? And the Eskimo is going to wake up the next day and be like, why the hell did I just buy this ice? I don't need this ice. Um, I was just, you know, conned into, into this. And so they're not going to have a positive inference or, or reference back to the person who sold them the ice. But if the goal is to, to build a long-term lasting trusted relationship with someone who's going to want to buy from you over and over again, you need to deliver something that they actually need. Um, or, you know, they may not know that they need it, but they're going to eventually want to, they are or should at least eventually need it at some point. Um, Because then all you're doing is serving as a con man. Exactly. That is uh, the true, that's the, that's the key to having those customer relationships for, for decades, literally. And I, and I still have customers that I, that I talk to that, you know, I told my first, in fact, I just had lunch with this guy, Stan Zylus, who's now kind of a consultant. I sold him my first internet T1. This is, you know, 1996, and he bought a T1. He was working for an advertising company called Rap Collins. He was the head of IT, and it was just when I was, I was just reflecting over lunch, like how long I've known the guy and how much, you know, how long we've kind of professionally have uh, interacted. But it's because of that dynamic that you that you say. It's because you know you understand what they are trying to accomplish from a business perspective, and then you sell them something or help them buy something that you know meets that need and makes them ultimately successful. So getting getting back to the topic at hand, which is data centers, you've kind of seen the data center from a number of different angles, both from serving as you know, a switching station and a switching facility for, for a local exchange carrier to the production grade facilities for government or uh, applications that simply cannot go down ever. Um, some people would say a data center is a data center is a data center. They're all the same. If you've seen one, you've seen them all. Um, some people will say that there's no real innovation going on in the data center industry. I'm curious what your what your perspective is to that extent. Yeah. So, um, well, look, it, it's it's actually a pretty pretty good time to be in the data center space, right? I mean, there's um, there's a couple things, you know, a couple huge macro trends that are going on that I think bode really well for the space. So, so number one, you know, when we touched on it a little bit when we were talking about Minneapolis, that, you know, there's still a lot of in-house infrastructure, right? I mean, by all accounts, there's probably 60 to 65% of enterprise infrastructure is still housed, you know, in office space or data centers that they own and manage, right? And the kind of the, you know, law of specialization is is pushing that you know those workloads out of corporate offices and into third-party data centers or the cloud, right? That's a that's a trend that you know has been going on for a while, but you know there's, it's still it's still happening, and it's still going to go on for for a bunch more years. And then the second trend, which is obviously is I think even bigger, is you know as we like to say the Internet of Everything, right? I mean ultimately the Internet is the manifestation of you know. The information age. If if you think about what it's been doing, and I think that's best encapsulated in an article written by Mark Andreessen in 2011, called you know why is software eating the world? And ultimately, every human 
interaction or every human kind of service, every human activity, scientific discovery or endeavor is being reduced to software and then ultimately ends up migrating to infrastructure that lives in a data center. I mean, if you think of Uber, what is it? It is literally someone decided to look at the problem of getting in and out of cabs as a software problem. And he developed an app for that. You know, it's what is Amazon, right? It is at its essence, a better solution to shopping, right? People don't want to go to stores. They don't want to deal with parking and the hassle of getting in and checking out. They just want to be able to order something. And obviously on the AWS side, it's it's about the, the cloud side, but that trend is gargantuan. That trend is, you know, it's a decade, multi-decade trend. Um, and it's going to, you know, this fundamentally change the world in terms of how we procure services, how we learn, how we communicate. And all that is under its underlying physical manifestation is those three things that I talked about earlier, which is data centers, fiber, and mobile infrastructure. So I think the, the data center space is, is, is enjoying a, a real bounty these days. And I, and I don't see that changing over the next, you know, three, five, seven years. So what, what specifically though, what kind of innovations have you seen taking place within the data center industry? And let's, let's look at the data center as the asset, not so much what's going on inside the facility and the data and the software. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look on, on that front, I I will say probably not as much, not as uh, revolutionary. It's been more evolutionary. I mean, the fundamental premise of a data center is still the same from 1995. Remember, I, I stepped in my first data center, which is an Exodus facility in New Jersey in 1995. And it had, you know, white space, it had cooling and it had power. So, and, and those things have not changed. No one's replaced, no one's figured out any other method to, to do that. But obviously what's happened is there's been a lot of incremental um steps to make that much more efficient, right? I mean, as you know, PUEs, you know, uh, you know, used to be two, two and a half in, in 10 years ago, 12, 13 years ago. Um, this asset that we're looking at, uh, you know, runs 50 megawatts of, of, of critical load and at an average PUE of, of 1.2. Uh, obviously, it's using a lot of outside air because it's in a good part of the country, but those those types of advances are making data centers much more efficient, um, and, and really that's that's the area that I, we've, I think we've seen the most improvement um, in, in in kind of data center technology. Yeah, and that's that's exactly what what I see going on, and it's kind of shocking to some people, or it's shocking to me. Let me say this: to when I see even existing large owner operators uh, build out new facilities that are kind of beholden to technology and cooling infrastructure from 10 years ago, five years ago. And I just don't see how they can, from a cost basis, continue to compete when you have new competitors coming into the market that are just being far more efficient with how they're designing and rolling out their properties and their facilities. Even even something as simple as building out in a modular fashion so not instantly building out capacity for 10, 15 megawatts um, and, you know, having a if we build it, they will come mentality. 
but only you know having the building blocks in place to add that capacity as it's needed over time, but initially rolling out only what you think is is prudent in the form of you know maybe one or two megawatts, and then adding that's, additional suites and infrastructure. That's that's exactly right. I mean the way the way we see it is let's say you know take a number. I mean what today a, a really good price for a megawatt, an average price, I should say, is about 10 million a megawatt, right? So if you take a, to your example, a, a 10 megawatt facility, let's say that's, um, you know, obviously $100 million. Uh, if we take uh, 10, 10 million watts and divide it by 200 watts per square foot, that gets us, I think, 50,000 square feet. So it's about 50,000 square feet of white space at 200 watts per square foot, $100 million. If, if you're doing it right, you're probably spending for the land, the building, the shell, the initial kind of fit out, you know, the, the whole kind of uh, master planning around, you know, future future deployments. But you're probably spending about 50 million bucks, and that will get you probably two megawatts day one. And then to your point, then you can deploy, you know, incrementally the rest of it uh, as your success base. So that that's definitely a big advance, advancement over the last 10 years. Is that Data center operators have gotten much more sophisticated around how they deploy their capital to, you know, make it so that it's not, um, you know, that you get a better return on it and that it's more success based as you're selling, as you're selling customers. And one of the other uh, key concepts there is also just the total cost to build out a data center has drastically dropped, right? That that per megawatt cost 10 years ago, 15 years ago was, you know, 5x, 10x what it is today. Um, I remember being told that the, you know, when I used to live in the San Francisco Bay Area and walk through 365 Main, when AboveNet really initially built that building out, I think they built it for something close to like $2 billion. And it was just kind of mind boggling to me that someone would spend that kind of money and then they ended up selling it for something around less than $100 million. You know, that, that cost of infrastructure and then the depreciation that occurred after 2001, the crash of 2001 was just stunning and shocking to me. But then the further, uh, with with more and more production facilities being built out and single purpose use facilities, there's the expertise around it grows and more and more of the components get get ordered at the end of the day, which drives down the, the incremental cost That's of right. each piece That's of right. it. Yeah, look, there's obviously been a lot more volume. So, you know, the generator manufacturers have had to sharpen their pencils over the last seven years as they, they want to compete to continue their sales. And the UPS guys, the same thing. And then obviously on the cooling side and and the kind of core electrical components as well. So all that stuff. And then and then the other piece that, that if you remember, you, 10 years ago, it was so common for businesses, for data center operators to have outages. And obviously, outages still happen today, but I would argue that kind of data center operations and, you know, data center telemetry, obviously, in the, in the form of DCIM and, and DMS systems, has that has really advanced a lot over the last 10 years. So, you know, so good operators, you know, best practices, good telemetry, good operational procedures, that has really created a much more stable um, product for end users. And, you know, it's not uncommon for us as we're looking at data center businesses to, to look at, you know, rather large businesses that have had, you know, one or none, uh, you know, power outages, you know, in, in a five-year period. And again, it's because of that. While that was never the case, 
you know, five years ago, five years ago, six years ago, everyone had outages. Um, now, you know, given all the advancements around the design and around kind of the way we maintain and operate data centers, we've really kind of taken a lot of the uh, error out of it. So in the role and position that you're in, you have the ability to see the financials of, of dozens, if not hundreds of different owner operators out there and facilities out there. Um, and that provides you some interesting context. Uh, and I, I'm not sure if you're under NDA and you can or can't speak to it, but I, I want to throw this question out there. What I hear today from a lot of people is, well, anyone who has a data center is going to be able to make money because the demand is so high. However, you know, what I'm seeing is there are a handful of owner operators in the industry, and we don't have to name names, who are seriously struggling in the market to sell, sell services. Um, and I could get into numerous reasons as to why I think that might be the case. But I'm curious what your, what your perspective is on that, on the sheer volume of people that we have in the industry today and why it is that some are, are doing extremely well um, and some are, are just not uh, great question. And, and look, I mean, number one, it, it's evident that we're going through a period of consolidation. So I think part of part of what's happening right now is, you know, there's, you know, people are, are getting larger and, and there's a lot of M&A that's happening. Uh, obviously, we just talked about some of the deals that we've done and we're continue to be active in the space. And, you know, there's Cologic Steel just got announced and, um, you know, there's a lot of other deals that have, that have been announced over the last 24 months. So I think, you know, I think things are going to start to consolidate, you know, in terms of the haves and the haves not. I think that's back to, you know, people have this belief that it's easy to run a data center, that all I need to do is have money and build a building and install equipment. But that gets back to our earlier point, which is, you know, it's that human element. It's kind of the operations and the engineering and the ongoing performance of a data center that's separating people. So, you know, when we see people that are struggling out there, it, it's usually because the, operationally they're not performing. And if they're not performing operationally, then their customers aren't happy and it's hard for them to keep their existing customers. And then it's hard for them to attract new customers. So I think what we'll see over the next, you know, three to five years is, you know, continued consolidation um, obviously, we got the, the five public guys. Uh, you know, there's, I don't think there's anyone else that's looking to go public at the moment. So you'll have the five public guys, and then I think you'll end up having a, a smaller and smaller number of of private players out there. And that, you know, the kind of what was the norms five six years ago, which is you know a single data center business, single market type of data center company. I think becomes, you know, the, the minority. Um, and what you end up with is, you know, super regional or national players. And ultimately customers prefer that because if they have a requirement in another part of the country, they obviously, they have a good relationship with their existing data center provider in their kind of primary market. They, it's, it's much easier to just extend that, um, that relationship um, with your existing provider than to go through the whole process of finding someone new. So, so I think the, um, the ones that aren't, doing well i think they'll they'll just you know eventually be uh, acquired uh by the ones that are doing well and this industry will continue to evolve towards i think better and better players yeah i hope to see that um one of the things that frightens me though is when you have massive bureaucratic companies that continue to swallow up the smaller more nimble 
flexible, innovative companies, and you just see those smaller, more flexible, innovative, nimble companies become stagnant after the fact, right? Um, yeah. So when, and that's that's just kind of a frightening thing that I see going on in general, and I know it's not unique to the data center industry. I mean, it happens in all industries. Um, I just don't know. I don't know what, if anything, can be done about that because the economies of scale are clearly present and and make sense as to why they're making those acquisitions. But really thinking through just structurally how it is that these large companies can become more nimble, because you know, as you and I well know, one of the primary factors that helps service providers do well in the industry is their ability to act quickly and respond quickly and have a very consistent message. But if you have numerous acquisitions going on over the course of a year or even over the course of two, three years, that messaging becomes somewhat convoluted and it becomes very tough for a company to be consistent with their messaging. And it also, when you've got two cultural dynamics, right? So like, let's look at CenturyLink and level three. Um, you know, the, the positioning coming from those companies is this is going to be a beautiful thing. And financially, it makes a lot of sense. But culturally speaking, you know, the customers that I know that work with these two, two companies are like, there's, <laughs> there's no freaking way this is going to go well. It's like two diametrically opposing cultures. It's like, I think someone said it best. They said it's like a, a hillbilly um, marrying an, a snobby New Yorker, right? It's... <laughs> It's how well, those two cultures are going to ex- coincide and be successful. Is, it's yet to be seen. I agree. Listen, I mean, you know, ultimately that will sort itself out, right? I mean, if, uh, if the pendulum swings too much in that direction of, of dysfunction, all that means obviously is that the market will spawn a new competitor, right? And, I, and you're actually starting to see this in the fiber space, which is a sector that's been massively consolidated over the last seven years, you know, through the efforts of, of Zayo and, and Light Tower. And those folks have now gotten, you know, a bit too big and um, a little less responsive. And it's creating opportunity for new companies to enter the market. So, you know, like in the New York market, there's Cross River Fiber and ZenFi and Axiom. And, and I think that kind of the, the market will police itself there. but you know, obviously, it will. There'll be some pain for customers, which is an unfortunate thing. Yeah. Um, well, I've got some rapid fire questions for you now, and we can we can wrap up here pretty quickly. But um, I greatly appreciate you you spending the time that you have thus far, my friend. You don't you don't have to have rapid fire answers to to the questions I'm going to throw at you. But um, I'm curious. For example, what uh, what's your the backdrop on your laptop? Uh, you know, I use I use a scene uh, from Spain actually, where we uh, where we where we vacation a lot. It's a, a beach town called Sitges. Right on, beautiful. Um, what is one of the most fascinating things that you've learned in the last couple months? That um, that one of the kind of Internet of Everything things is is called computational research, and you know to show how expansive that digital transformation is. What's happening in kind of the in the life science world is, you know, they used to do all their research by, you know, going into labs and, um, you know, doing experiments and, and kind of doing trials in the field. But now what they're doing is they're figuring out how to kind of mimic those data points in software and then simply, you know, collect huge amounts of data 
and then process that. So in other words, experimentation is being digitized. And if you think about the, the ramifications of that in terms of the accelerating of, of advancements in science and engineering, and I learned this through a data center opportunity with, um, with um, where the anchor, customer, the anchor tenant was uh, uh, a university that, that, that does a lot of research. And to think about that you know, as a whole new area of demand for data center space, I, I thought was fascinating. Yeah, it's it's funny you mentioned that because I share my office with a good friend of mine who runs an equipment finance company. His name is Brian Fleming, and the, the firm is Fort Capital. Um, he's actually working with a, a client right now on a, a very interesting opportunity that's in exactly that space. Um, yep. it's, it's, it is truly, truly mind-blowing. Um, if you could go back to your prior self when you were, let's, let's say when you were selling vacuums door-to-door, what is a piece of nugget of information you would give yourself then um, if, if you could? Well, um, that, you know, that, that, that it's a long, that it's a, that life is a, you know, is a marathon. And, um, you know, I've, I've kind of always taken it as a sprint. Um, and that's led to, you know, periods of fatigue. Um, and and maybe um, a little bit of um, too much um, you know anticipation, but um, but anyway, I think that that would that's what I tell myself. It's uh, it's amazing how um, you know you can continue to go on in this space, and you know trying to find an end is 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 not a not a search that I think is worth worth it. What is a common misconception you think people have about the internet or about uh, you know the the data center industry or the fiber industry um, that you hear people repeating over and over again that you just kind of shake your head at. Yeah, no, that's an easy one. That uh, that the cloud is going to kill all the data centers, right? And what people don't realize is that the cloud, you know, fundamentally needs data center infrastructure. And look, that might be wholesale, that might be retail. We don't you don't have to split that hair right now. But 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 that kind of idea that you know, AWS and Azure and Google Compute Engine, you know, are going to be the demise of kind of third-party data centers. I think when you actually look at the trends and what's going on, you realize that those players, you know, heavily rely on on third-party data center providers. And that's just a, it's a fallacy. Yeah, not not only do they heavily rely, but they're now the largest consumers of data So, Raul, I want to give you an opportunity to, to tell people how they can reach out to you and find you and find out the, the stuff that you're working on right now. Where, uh, where can people go? So uh, after I left my, my first business, I, I started kind of Moss Telecom, which is just uh, my, 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 me, myself, and I, a consulting business. And I got a blog up there, which was kind of a, mostly articles around some of the stuff I've been doing in Africa. So that'd be an interesting place if people want to hear about kind of the Africa telecom landscape, you know, Moss Telecom, it's M-A-A-S telecom.com. Well, my friend, I greatly appreciate you taking the time. I wish you nothing but the best. I'm sure we will be talking again soon. And uh, last but not least, I have one final, final question for you. Do you love data centers, Raul? I love this space, man. It's, is, uh, this is, I, I love everything to do with this space. It's, um, you know, we're living in a beautiful time. We are, you know, 100 years from now, um, this era will be kind of reminiscent of, think about what happened at the turn of the last century where, you know, people went 
in, in 20 years from darkness to electricity to motion picture to communication with, you know, with, with telegraph and telephone. I mean, there is the amount of change that we're living through right now. We're kind of a bit like the frog in the pan with the heat turning up and we don't notice it, but it's going to be, it's going to be viewed as one of the pivotal points in, in, in human history, I think. Yeah, most definitely. What, what other, what other languages do you speak? I speak Spanish fluently and I, I know a decent amount of French. Did you say I love data centers in French? Um, like I can say it in Spanish, yo amo data centers. <laughs> <laughs> All right, buddy. Thank you, man. We'll talk soon. Thanks. Thanks a lot for your time. Bye-bye. So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And before I sign off, I really need you to know that we really do love data centers over here at Open Spectrum. It's not just a, a catchy tagline for a podcast. They are our passion and our livelihood. And I encourage you to learn more about how we serve buyers, service providers, agents, master agents, and investors in the data center hosting network and cloud services space. Uh, you can check out our website at www.openspectruminc.com where you can download a mountain of free content that we produce, such as the numerous regional market reports and excerpts from our book, the Data Center Collocation Industry Playbook, that is now on its fourth edition. And I think at this point, we've sold close to over 1,200 copies of the book. You can also read the show notes and links from this podcast at www.openspectruminc.com forward slash I love data centers. Have a great week and I will see you and hopefully hear from you soon. 